This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. The Bible must be understood in its cultural, historical, and theological context. The Bible does not claim to be an exhaustive manual on every matter and issue, but is the source of all truth that is needed to know God and understand His purposes and His will. Many critics of the Bible say that they don't believe the Bible because it contradicts science. Or the document's just too full of war and blood and violence. You may have begun to doubt the Bible's authenticity because it was written by humans. You may have begun to question God's existence as well. Pastor Josh explains in today's message how the Bible was written by several authors under the constant guidance of the Holy Spirit. It describes not only God and His nature, but also His will for you. It's not just a history book about the Israelites. When you begin a relationship with Jesus, God speaks to you and guides you through His Word, the Bible. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 as he continues his message, Why Trust the Bible? The word canon, which is what you hold in your hand, it's a word that literally means rod. It was a carpentry term that carpenters and builders would use to determine the standard by which they would build something. In relation to the scripture, canon refers to the rules or standards by which the various letters and documents were compiled and measured to determine the inspiration and the validity of their claims. Most people don't know that it took about 350 years after the Apostle John died for all these 66 books to become the universally accepted closed canon, what we call it, of the church as the authoritative and inspired word of God. Regarding the New Testament, we'll talk about the Old Testament in a moment, but regarding the New Testament, this happened through years of debate and discussion. Various councils of the early church fathers gathered together and hashed out the issues of what was inspired or not. And they had to because false doctrine was already infiltrating the church. And they had to know we need to have a standard by which we measure our faith and what is true and what is false. About 300 AD, there were 20 New Testament books floating around recognized by some of the church leaders. And many other books that had claims of apostolic authorship floating around but communicating a slightly or very different gospel than they had received. And the church saw the need to have pure doctrine. And so they, that is the church fathers, the various bishops of the church, they gathered together in councils and they employed five main criteria when examining the various texts that were out there as to whether or not these would be considered the texts that we trust. Number one, it had to be of apostolic or authorship or written at least by a ministry partner or one who was personally attached or who had personal interaction with Jesus. It's one of the qualifications. The second qualification was that it was Christocentric or it was focused on the qualities and characteristics of the person and work of Jesus, especially in relation to his redemptive work on the cross for the world. The third quality or standard was that it would reflected divine inspiration and in that it 
tied into and did not contradict the already accepted scripture, which is the Old Testament. All of the New Testament books had to have references from the accepted Old Testament passages and scriptures to have the continuity. And then, and I like this one, it had to have the sign of the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the early church fathers believed that the Spirit must bear witness to what he inspired by putting them all into agreement as to what should be accepted. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever served on a church council or tried to organize a multi-church event. Try getting at least five churches in the same town to agree on two things. And you'll realize right off the bat that it's only a spirit-filled task or work that could actually cause that kind of unity. And that was one of the standards. Number five was general acceptance by the church. The book must have already been widely accepted and used as an authoritative letter by most of the church. So through that process in 397 AD at the Council of Carthage, the canon of scripture was finalized with the current books of the Bible that we have. Now, many people look at the process through which we've obtained the Bible and they become afraid. They realize the Bible has human handprints and fingerprints all over it. So you hear arguments from cults and from those outside. The Bible's been contaminated over time and you can't trust it. It's the invention of man. The Bible was certainly pinned by man and compiled by man. And this scares some folks away from believing it. Now, conversely, the opposite happens for me. <laughs> I'm amazed that God could use such fallible people through a gradual process over millennia to create what is such an obviously perfect book. That's for me. But this raises a question that's very important. Why do we consider the canon or the Bible closed? If God used by divine guidance and inspiration men to discover the canon, and by the way, that's it. You realize the scripture, the inspired word of God, it always, always existed. Always existed. Norman Geisler puts it like this. God determined the canon, but man discovered it. It's not like man invented it, okay? Don't misplace the two ideas. It's not like the church council got together, okay, we need to invent the word of God. No, they discovered it. Like, again, sorry with the puzzle analogies, but a puzzle has already a predetermined image. It's already there but you get to discover it as you put it together. And that's what the process of canonization was all about, man's discovery of God's eternal truth. But why then do we have a closed canon? If God did it back then, could he not bring a new revelation? Could he not add to the Bible? Could he not? And so we begin to ask this question. And I think, maybe you've never asked a question, but I asked a question many times through my Christian why do I consider that Bible the final authority? Why is it closed? I mean, if God used man and, and used these church leaders, and I think it's a valid question, and I admit it's difficult to answer. So hear my answer with another question. What do you think it would take today to find another book that has apostolic authority, has Christ at the center of its message, fits without contradiction the rest of Scripture and its narrative, bears the power of the Holy Spirit, is widely accepted by the universal church, and every Christian leader agrees on it. What would you need for that to happen today? I don't know, maybe like a uh, move of the Holy Spirit? It's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit did that once, and uniquely, you know, how about I give you this? If it happens, and all of those things come together, then you can come knock at my door. But if you want to knock at my door and tell me that your founder saw an angel from heaven called Moroni and he gave him invisible golden scrolls that only he could see with his special glasses 
to reveal the new revelation of God, I'm sorry, that's not going to do it. It's not going to cut it for me. Too risky. And I'm not mocking Mormons. I'm just saying they're deceived. The revelation of God has been expressed and closed. So my advice is let's stick with what we have. It was a move and work of the Holy Spirit to get what we've got. And Gawson put it well. He said, the authority of the scriptures is not founded then on the authority of the church. It is a church that is founded on the authority of the scriptures. Why is it important for us to have a closed canon? I think that's an important question. First of all, it protects us from false spirits and false doctrines that seek to lead us away from God. Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Well, how do you know the gospel that you have received, and how do you know the limits of what that gospel is unless you have an authoritative source that is closed and that is, it is said, it is finished? Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How? What is it built on? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the New Testament, the prophets, it's the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We have to know, well, what is the apostles' doctrine? Not as what is, what is a new revelation. No, what is the apostles' doctrine? And this is why we reject movements today, even so-called Christian movements, that claim Christ but speak new revelations of Christ. i got to take a big breath now. I'm about to say something that will probably cause people to leave. But I love you. I really love you. And I hope you know that. I was, I'm shocked by the movements today that just want special, deeper revelation from God when they have the Bible right in front of them. It shocked me when I, I had to go back and actually listen to the whole context of the message when I heard Joyce Meyer say, what I'm about to tell you, quote, you won't find in the Bible. You need special revelation to hear what I'm about to say. And then she goes on to say, and I believe that angels are preaching the message in my ear right now that I'm going to give you. I'm not here to judge Joyce Meyer. I'm just saying, if you're going to tell me something from God that's not in the Bible, keep it to yourself. I'd rather not have it. Whether she say, I, that's not my business. I'm not judging her salvation. I'm not, what I'm saying is, point of reference, you guys, don't be so emotionally connected to a pastor, a preacher, a phenomenon, an author, because they inspire me and they made me cry and I felt so connected to God when I listened to them. You guys, for a moment, in all love, you have to disconnect yourself emotionally and connect yourself to the truth. Your emotions are deceived because by nature they are fallen. Connect yourself to the truth. Anchor yourself in the word of God. So the New Testament canon came at a very specific cost. The Old Testament canon, we don't know exactly how the scriptures came to be accepted. It's not fully known. But here's what we do know about the Old Testament and the veracity of it. We know that the apostolic church and Jesus himself believed in the full authority 
historicity and inspiration of the Tanakh, or the 39 Old Testament books that we possess. Jesus communicated the authenticity of the threefold division of the Hebrew Scriptures. In Luke 24, Jesus wrote, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Notice Jesus referenced the law and prophets, the Psalms, and the law of Moses, verifying his belief in their inspiration. Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures as historical fact. In Matthew 19, he quoted about the creation of man. In Matthew 23, he he quoted about the events of Cain and Abel. In Matthew 12, Jesus quoted the events of Jonah, fully deriving authority from the scripture of the Old Testament. What about the integrity of the Old Testament? Well, it figures that God would have chosen the most meticulous people to preserve his word through the ages. The Jewish scribe, was responsible for making handwritten copies of the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures for the next generations. The Torah documents would be in scrolls 70 feet long and took a scribe over three years to compose. And after a scroll was completed, they had to check the document for accuracy. Scribes would literally count, listen to this, They would count the letters from beginning to end. They counted 304,805 letters in the Torah, stopping at the 152,402nd word or letter in Leviticus 11.42, knowing that the next letter would be the center letter of the text. And if that letter was not correct, they would go back and re-examine the entire text. Then they would do it the other way and go from the middle to the end. And if that letter was not correct, they would go and they would... Scrap the whole scroll and start over. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in Israel, it shut the mouth of a lot of critics who claimed that our texts in the Bible were hampered and not close to the original texts that were written. And then they find the oldest known documents of the Old Testament and 99.9% match. And anything that didn't match was only slight variations of letters, not affecting theology, not affecting doctrine, not affecting the context or the message written. Shut up a lot of people. You know, critics love to blast the Bible for translation errors throughout the centuries. Based on a secular weight, a secular standard by textual critics, The Bible's textual purity is 99.5% based on a system that measures ancient texts in the secular world. There are over 24,000 manuscripts and fragments in four separate languages spanning hundreds of years. None of them contradict each other in theological truths. Not only that, but we have copies, listen, of New Testament books that date closer to the original authorship than any other ancient manuscript. We have manuscripts from the Gospel of John that date close to 130 years after the original. You're like, 130 years? That's a long time. Let me put it in context for you. That's like three generations away from the apostles. To put it in perspective, let's take Aristotle, for example. His work was done between 384 and 322 BC. The earliest copy of any of his work that we possess is 1100 AD. It's 1400 years later after he wrote it. 
Plato, 1,200 years between copies. Homer, Iliad, 500 years between copies. How many people are out there saying, oh, we can't trust Aristotle? Personally, I think they just don't like what Jesus has to say. That's what I personally believe. But the canon of the Bible, the Holy Spirit took through an intensive process to bring the purity of what we have today, and he has preserved it in the most incredible way. So finally, let's look thirdly at the context of the Bible. And our statement here is the Bible must be understood in its cultural, historical, and theological context. The Bible does not claim to be an exhaustive manual on every matter and issue, but is the source of all truth that is needed to know God and understand his purposes and his will. Many critics of the Bible say that they don't believe the Bible because it contradicts science, or the document's just too full of war and blood and violence. Grudem points out that the scripture is namely written in natural language, not technical language. It was written by people with certain understandings of their culture, of science, and of their own language. For example, from the rising of the sun till the setting of the same, the Lord's name is greatly to be praised. Oh, the sun doesn't rise and set, the Bible's wrong. Really? First of all, it's not a scientific statement. Second of all, when's the last time you sat on your porch with your husband or your wife and you said, do you see the beautiful luminescence of the sky as the earth rotates on its axis away from the sun? (laughs) No, you say, look at that sun. Don't you know science, people? Come on. When we talk about inerrancy, we're not so much looking for the technical language. We're looking for the truthfulness of the statement. That no matter what time of day it is, day or night, God is still worthy of praise. That's the truth that impacts our lives. How about this one? Jesus said that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds, and we know that it's the, it's not the, it's the orchid seed. The Bible's not right. First, Jesus was drawing an analogy, not teaching a science class. Secondly, if you've ever been to Israel in the spring, I have, you're walking on the hills of the Sea of Galilee, and All you see is yellow, full mustard plants everywhere. What if Jesus was looking at his disciples? He's like, guys, come here. The kingdom of God is like an orchid seed. What's What's an orchid? I don't know. Jesus wanted his audience to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. He wanted his audience to understand the nature of faith, and he used the context of the smallest seed they had awareness of in their minds. Again, these excuses are just fairly, not only illogical, but they're fairly shallow in regards to the truth of what God's word contains. Oh, the Bible's just so bloody. There's so much death and children and people dying and being killed by Israel. Quite frankly, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. Not that those things happen, but the Bible, if the Bible was written by man for a man-made agenda, what would they do? They do what all men do. They take out the parts that they don't like, they put in the parts that sound good so you, can, so you can buy into their story. Imagine if you read a revisionist history book on World War II that didn't say anything about the Holocaust. What would you think about that book? Oh, I think it'd probably be a lie. Something would be wrong if we didn't read the Bible and didn't see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all of it. And God doesn't justify all the wicked things that happen, but he records it. And I'm glad he did. How many, how many other battles? Uh, is there any, any history buffs out here? How many battles have you studied? You know, Civil War, World War II. You study these battles. 
that have done what the Bible does to you when you read about King Hezekiah and the battle. And he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will go fight for you. And in your spirit, you're facing a spiritual battle and attack. And you're saying, God's going to stand with me. God's going to fight for me. God's going to go before me. You think you're just studying a battle? No, God has something in there. He's speaking to you. It's powerful. I think we have to appreciate the Bible for what it is. Or as Edgar Mullins again said, we must let the Bible tell its own story and not hold it to false standards and tests. If you look at the Bible and the context of what it is and its character of divine ideas and continuity and consistency and its canonicity, the process through which the Holy Spirit brought to pass the scriptures that we hold today, when you look at its context and how it's supposed to communicate to us the heart of God, then you recognize this is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow. As Hebrews tells us, those of you who have experienced the Bible can testify that nothing else has been able to, this, to bring you to an accurate knowledge of yourself, like the Bible has, an accurate knowledge of God, like the Bible has, an accurate knowledge of the world around you and God and other people, like the Bible has. And granted, I'm not a theologian, per se. I'm not a, I'm not a Bible teacher. I can't even talk English. I mean, think about this. I'm not a history professor. I might not have provided some here the arguments they need to consider the Bible, and that's fine, but I want to leave you, if you're still a skeptic, I want to leave you with one final question. I don't think every question about the Bible we have this side of heaven will be answered personally, but here's my question to you. If you're going to criticize and avoid and ignore the Bible, then where are you deriving your source of authority for the way you live, for the decisions you make, for the relationships you have, for what you think about God. And I would challenge you to make an appointment with me and defend your sources with the same sort of defense that can be mounted for the Bible that we have today, its claims. Perhaps you would challenge yourself to take a deeper look at the very least. I hope that is helpful, but the Bible is powerful. And can you testify, anyone here testify to the power of the God's word in your life? That's enough evidence right there. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us. You have communicated your heart, your understanding, your will, your purposes. We thank you that you still speak to us, Holy Spirit. You speak to us, you guide us and direct us, and you always root it back in what you've already said. We can have that surety, that foundation anchored in our hearts, that what we have and what we read is trusted, it's inspired, it's without error, and we can lean on it for everything we need. So Lord, conform us into the image, the things you have spoken. What you've spoken can't be stolen, and we're thankful that we have what you've spoken right in our laps. May we not take it for granted, may it not gather dust on the shelf, but may we hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you, that we might know you in a deeper and stronger way. Amen. 
You've never heard a truer word spoken than the message given by Pastor Josh Blevins as he spoke in today's edition of The Ascending Life. In case you're hearing us for the first time, we're a ministry out of St. Joseph, Missouri. And like so many outreach programs, it wouldn't be possible without the generous donations of people like you. All we ask is that if your heart was touched today by Pastor Josh's message and you feel led to further the truth of the gospel, would you consider clicking on the Giving tab located at our website, theascendinglife.com. If you're interested in getting to know us a little better, go to the About link located at the top of our page, theascendinglife.com, or watch us online via Facebook. While you're there, check out all the other avenues to get into God's Word. There's even some options for when you're on the move. Under the Media tab, you'll notice links to podcasts and our YouTube channel. That website again is theascendinglife.com. As it's our desire to point you to Christ, it's also our wish that you would simply feel free to talk with us if your heart is heavy with life or full of praise. Just dial 816-279-2090. That number again is 816-279-2090. We look forward to hearing from you. Friends, there's no better place than to be here learning about the life-giving Savior who is Jesus. So, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for taking the time to listen to this broadcast of The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing in.